three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jeez. some of these people. I just, Put uh, down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, Would you rather? Uh, right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. I've got a great episode in store for all of you where I'm joined by author, TED speaker, and mental health advocate Michelle Dickinson. And we explore issues including why people who have never experienced a mental health imbalance before are at particularly high risk during the COVID-19 pandemic, why monitoring media consumption might be the best thing you can do to improve your emotional wellness during quarantine, the importance of designating space in your home and your schedule for work and leisure during quarantine, and finally, why many people might be experiencing the sensation of boredom for the very first time during the pandemic. All that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. Hi guys, so this is the uh, first episode of the new format that I talked about on the May 1st mid-year update. Uh, The podcast will be moving back to the weekly format, so no more of those segments, and we're going to be having guests almost every week. Also, as I uh, mentioned um, we're still gonna have bonus episodes because I know a lot of you, um, you know, listen listen for those. Uh, and I think what I'm gonna do is what I'm doing now is where I sort of have my my little you know usual conversation with you guys at the beginning, and then we dive into whatever the the you know discussion of the week is with that particular guest. So for the first episode of this new format, I wanted to focus on mental health for a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, given everything going on in the world with the pandemic, I think this is a particularly timely issue. I think that people who haven't experienced mental health problems in the past may be experiencing them for the first time. I also think that people who have been diagnosed with mental health or mood disorders uh, are struggling more than, than maybe others are given the isolation and the social distancing. So I did want to have the conversation with Michelle for that reason. Um, Also, on top of that, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, So that's sort of another reason why I think these issues are particularly relevant right now. And, you know, if you've listened to my podcast, you know that mental health and generally, you know, uh, psychopathology is something that's, you know, an issue that's very close to my heart. It's something that I spoke about in episode seven with my sister, Holly, uh, on the problem of mental uh, illness in America. I shared my personal struggles with anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and so this more than anything else, I think is is a really uh, fitting first um, episode to have with, with this new format. Uh, and as I said, you know, We've, we've touched on mental health issues before on the pod, but never, you know, we, we haven't been privileged enough to have a legitimate mental health advocate like Michelle on the podcast before. And, you know, before we dive into the conversation with Michelle, just to present the lay of the land right now, I think that, I think that people have, have felt the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic in a lot of ways, but and as much as we're deprived of, you know, physical fitness from going to the gym or access to our office or school by not being able to visit those facilities, I think that people need in-person interaction on a cellular level. We we crave just being in the presence of others, even if we're not talking, even if, you know, we're sitting in a movie theater surrounded by strangers. I think that that we st- evolutionarily, biologically, like like we we, we really um, need that in order to to just function and and mentally and emotionally be be healthy. And I don't think that virtual, as much as you know, I've spoke about on um, uh, a number of episodes. I think on the bonus episode we talked we touched on this, but I don't think that virtual um, meetups are an ample substitute. I think they're they're adequate. You know, Zoom is is great, and as fun as Zoom happy hours and virtual hangouts are, they can only do so much to replicate the feeling of being around another human being, of just being in someone's physical presence. 
And actually, I don't want to stray too far um, away here, but I was reading an article posted on National Geographic the other day about this thing called Zoom fatigue. Um, and, you know, maybe you've experienced this. If you've been feeling tired doing work or school on Zoom, you're not alone because the process of being on Zoom for, you know, five, six, seven, upwards of eight hours a day is exhausting. And there's a reason for that, you guys. There's actually science behind it because what this article on National Geographic touched on is that you end up having to emote more than you would in person over Zoom because you're essentially just a tiny box on a screen. Essentially, you know, particularly with the, with the gallery view, you have 30 small boxes and you need to make sure that your, um, you know, nonverbal communication comes through. So you emote more, which is absolutely you know, consumes a lot of energy. Uh, and also contrast that with in-person interactions. In in-person interactions, we rely heavily on these nonverbal cues. You guys have probably heard the old saying that communication is only 7% verbal and 93% nonverbal. So, you know, as much as you can over-remote on Zoom, you still don't have all the nonverbal cues, such as whether someone is facing you or slightly turned away, um, if they're fidgeting when they talk. If they inhale quickly in preparation to interrupt, not having those makes communication more difficult. It makes communication less accurate. Uh, and as I said, you know, with the gallery view, you're also, it's also sort of challenging the brain's central vision because it's forcing it to decode so much stimuli, so many people at the same time that no one person comes through meaningfully not even the speaker. It's like having to, to multitask. Um, and as anyone that studies psychology knows, and, and you've probably heard this before, I know that Ma I think Malcolm Gladwell talked about this, this in Blink, and a lot of the, the pop psychology books have touched on this, but there's no such thing as multitasking. And as much as you might feel like you have the ability to read your email, talk on the phone, and engage in Facebook Messenger all at the same time, it's literally not possible. And what you're actually doing in that case is you're playing like multiple games of red light, green light in your brain. You know, you're, you're constantly stopping one task and starting another and stopping one task and starting another. And in psychology, this is known as serial tasking, not multitasking. There is an exception uh, if it's an activity that can be done sort of um, with muscle memory or, or you know, unconsciously like walking and talking on the phone or listening or uh, chewing gum and um, playing basketball. I don't know. Uh, that I guess is, is real multitasking. But when you talk about, you know, doing things like reading an email, talking on the phone um, and, you know, watching a TV show, that's serial tasking. And, you know, bringing it back to Zoom, when you're having to toggle between different people speaking in a classroom setting on Zoom or in a workplace meeting environment, that's challenging and that's exhausting. So this article by National Geographic's, I mean, you can look it up. I, I feel like I've, I've already uh, sort of like distilled it down to its main points. It just talks about how Zoom fatigue is a real thing. And I think we're going to see more of it in the coming weeks. Uh, so all this is to say that I am very excited for the conversation with Michelle Dickinson. Um, and I think that if you or a loved one has experienced mental health issues or if you're feeling alone or particularly sad or depressed right now with coronavirus, uh, I would definitely recommend that you tune into this conversation with author, TED speaker, and mental health advocate, Michelle Dickinson. Anyway, without further ado, uh, my conversation with Michelle. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ricky. Well, listen, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. As you and I had discussed beforehand, I think that this is an important conversation to be having right now, given everything that's going on in the world. And of course, also given that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Yeah, absolutely. Very timely. And we'll get to the social distancing and COVID-19 um, in a few moments. But just to sort of better inform our listeners, Michelle, you have devoted most of your life to advocating for mental health issues, discussing ways to discre uh, decrease the mental health stigma and shame that prevents people from getting care. So what sparked your interest in these issues? Well, let's see. Um, I grew up with a mother who had bipolar disorder. 
and by no choice of my own, I was her child caregiver. So I witnessed what it was like to love and and care for someone with um, bipolar, with the rapid cycling of extreme highs and deep lows. And then in my 40s, I struggled with my own uh, bout of depression and being adopted. I didn't anticipate having to deal with my own mental illness, um, but because of a life event, I found myself dealing with depression, which only reminded me that nobody's immune to a mental illness, no matter what. And then the third piece of that is that I worked at a Fortune 50 company for several years. And the last few years of my time there, I was on the leadership team helping to develop and implement an employee resource group focused on mental health and removing stigma in the workplace. I appreciate you sharing all that. I think that it's it's so critical that people realize how common these, these you know um, mental health and mood disorders are. And I think the more open we all are about our struggles, the more we can normalize these kinds of things. And um, I actually mentioned back in the seventh episode of my podcast that, um, and I mentioned this also in my introduction today, but I, I've been managing generalized anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder pretty much my whole life. And I still find myself, Michelle, organizing my refrigerator based on size and you know breakfast yeah. lunch and dinner foods it, it's hard i mean un unless you experience it yourself or you witness someone experiencing it it's extremely difficult to um to really un understand what life is like and how much how much more challenging it is for someone living with it absolutely and i think you know it doesn't doesn't even just impact you i mean you mentioned you had um you know you were caring for for your mother who had bipolar disorder um it's it's you know it, it's interesting because my old roommate and a great friend of mine, you know, he lived with me for three years. He, he wasn't really even aware that I had OCD. And one day he just sort of told me um, three years, you know, two, three years into living together. He said, Rick, I noticed that you have a tendency to turn all the shampoo bottles in the shower to exactly a 45 degree angle. And whenever I shift them a little bit, you shift them back. So he would move the shampoo bottles just to play mind games with me sometimes, which is sort of a funny aside. But I guess all this yeah. is to say that. I think that you know I can relate to the mental health issues that you yeah, and the people you're advocating for have been living with, and I think others who have been exposed to it can also sort of understand you know how how that works. Yeah, and I think it takes good examples like you and ha having the courage to openly talk about it that really helps people to understand it. You know, I think we need more examples of that, and especially in the workplace. You know, imagine if you had a leader you look up to who thought it was a good idea to be vulnerable and share their experience. Imagine the safety or the safe space that would open up for employees to just be themselves. I, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, so, and, and we'll talk about, in, in a few minutes, we'll talk about sort of like how this stigma has evolved over time. But I think it's easier in 2020 for me to talk about this than in, you know, maybe like 2010. I think we as a society have grown a lot. And I like to think, and I'm sure you're going to agree, Michelle, that these mental health disorders are not so much debilitating crutches right. as they are things that just make us different from each other. No, absolutely. I think that there are, I know some of the most brilliant, uh, creative, uh, innovative people that, that live with a mental illness. They, they simply need to just do what they need to do so that they can show up the best way that they can. And ultimately they succeed in life. So I think it's about allowing people to bring their authentic selves to work and be able to be truly who they are because, and, and have companies be able to support them and have, you know, we need to be able to support them where they are because they're brilliant. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I, th I think that I think this is a great point about how a lot of people with these conditions tend to be amongst the most gifted, um, you know, talented people in the world. It's almost, you know, these, these differences that we're talking about it for me, it's almost like, um, do you, what's your, what's your baseball team? Do you root for a baseball team? That, I, I like the Yankees. I think the Yankees, I was always a Jeter fan. Okay. <laughs> that, that's I mean, so that's perfect. Cause I'm a, I'm a diehard Mets fan, but I just think that when we frame these issues, it's almost like you're a Yankee fan. I'm a Mets fan. And that's though, you know, those are just qualities that make us different from one another. Um, yep. and that's, that's what mental, mental illness is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and isn't it a beautiful tapestry when we can accept people for exactly who they are? For sure. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't give us an opportunity to talk about what's happening in the world with the COVID pandemic. Folks have been in isolation, many people for over two months now. 
And there's been a lot written about the impact this is having on our economy and people's physical well-being uh, as far as diet and fitness are concerned. But Michelle, what sort of impact might this have on people with pre-existing mental health conditions like depression and anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I think those are the folks who might actually have an idea of tools and mechanisms to help them navigate it, to be honest with you. Now, I'm not saying that they're they're not they're not going to be affected. They certainly are. The population I'm scared about or I'm concerned for are people who have never experienced a mental health imbalance and for the first time are isolated and by themselves and trying to figure it out on their own not knowing um, that they might be struggling with something that they need some type of support for. So I think there could be a lot more people suffering in silence just because they've never experienced this before and now they don't know what to do. Um, so I'm concerned for everyone. And I think it's really important that, um, that, that people are checking in on the ones that they love because never assume that everyone's okay. Everyone's trying to figure this out and navigate it on their own. I mean, you talk about suffering in silence, and I think that, and you've probably seen this in, in your time as a mental health advocate, but it can be the hardest thing in the world to reach out and ask someone for help. So, you know, how can, how can someone who maybe has a friend or family member that they're concerned about let them know that they're there for them? Because it can be hard for, for the person to, you know, ask for a lifeline. The greatest gift we can offer people is just a genuine listening. Are you Okay and allowing them to share if they so choose to share. I think, you know, we we often take on the burden, well, I won't know how to diagnose them. I won't know how to give them clinical support. That's not your job. Your job is to just let them know that they're cared for and that you're there and that you're listening to them. And once they start talking, then you can start talking about, okay, there's some resources. Maybe, maybe I can help you get yourself to the next level, which is to get some type of formal support. So our generosity and our listening is the greatest gift that we can offer anyone. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I can imagine that for folks who for folks who struggle with this, it can be extremely disheartening, you know, going through the isolation right now. But even for people who don't struggle with a mood disorder, you know, having to be stuck inside all day and devoid of that human contact, how you know, how would you recommend that ordinary people go about staying, you know, mentally healthy and, and refreshed and recharged, even if they don't have like a history of yes. mental health problems? Yeah, so it's great that you asked that. And I just so happen, I had a, a client, I have a couple of uh, really amazing pharmaceutical clients that I'm working with. And one of them said, I want to support my people now. What is it that we can get in their hands now while they're working remote, just so that they know that they're cared for and we're thinking about them during this time? So I have a resilience webinar that I've been sharing. And some of the tips that I share in that webinar are, are really quite simple. But because this this is a brand new space we're all operating in. We sort of forget the basics. So I bring it back to, are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating well? Are you not only gravitating to comfort food? Are you, are you drinking a lot? Are you not moving your body and getting physical exercise? Um, are you controlling the sources of fear that could cause anxiety? Are you monitoring how much television and news and media that you're consuming? Are you making sure that you're connecting with people using Zoom and Skype so you can see the friendly faces that really do brighten you up and, you know, help you boost your your energy for the day? These are all things that we can do that are really quite simple, but can make a huge difference if we if we implement them. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's actually uh, fantastic advice. And, and if you don't mind, I, I do want to dive a little deeper into some of the things you just mentioned, because mm -hmm. you said, for example, you know, make sure you're getting enough sleep. I would say that a lot of people, Michelle, right now are probably getting too much sleep given. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm, just, I'm just thinking if someone has depression, you know, can be a struggle to get out of bed. So, you know, how do you walk that fine line? Yeah, it's routine. So you have to stick to routine. So, yeah, it's very easy to sleep at night and then get up and lay on the couch all day and sleep more. So you're absolutely right. There could be that that uh, excess of, of sleep. I think that the challenge is when you're not getting good quality sleep, maybe because you're going to bed at 12 or one or two in the morning and you're not getting a nice a nice restful period, um, you're, 
that's a problem. And having not having a structure in your life where, okay, I'm going to accomplish these things today. These are things that I can, that I do have control over. I'm going to clear out that closet. I'm going to make sure I get 30 to 40 minutes of exercise today. Um, I'm going to maybe binge watch two hours of TV instead of eight and fall asleep on the couch. Like you have to have structures in your life even now to keep your well-being um, healthy. And, and then it's going to afford you to have a, a real restful night's sleep that, that has you ready to tackle your day and not just sort of be resigned about, um, about everything and, and get too much sleep. So the key in your eyes is having structure, even for, you know, whether it be kids that are out of school and don't have that, that schedule or people who are, are not working, just making sure they have some semblance of, of a day-to-day schedule. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The structure in the home is important. Even physical spaces in the home designated for exercise and for relaxation and, and for work and for rest. I mean, these are all really important. I mean, structure has you accomplish things you want to do. And at the end of that day, you will have a heightened sense of yourself that you accomplished what you said you were going to do. You know, that sense of accomplishment is, is really nurturing and really important. It's funny. Um, you know, you, you talk about how having de- designated spaces is helpful. I, I've tried to do that in my apartment. Um, you know, as I'm rounding out my semester in law school, I, you know, I like to have sort of like I'll do, you know, my work in the kitchen area and then my, my bedroom area is more for like sleep and leisure. And I think that, you know, talking to my roommate, my roommate um, actually goes, he he, uh, he attends virtually his, his job in his room and he also sleeps in his room. He said that he's had trouble, you know, some insomnia because he doesn't have that sort of partition. And so I think it is, it is important, as you said, that even if you have a small space, you, you know, uh, cordon off like this, this is, you know, this is the space for work and this is the space for fun. Just your mind can kind of compartmentalize like that. Or designated times, Ricky, like, okay, I'm going to work from this hour to this hour. And then at this time, everything gets shut down. And then, then this becomes my relaxation time. And this is the time where I'm signaling to my body that I'm starting to unwind from the day. You know, those are important, um, you know, distinctions in and of itself, like separation of work from play, because we need that decompression time and play time outside of, of, you know, working hours. For sure. For sure. And, and you mentioned um, a few moments ago the media consumption, and you had said to try to control that. So, yeah. you know, why why is that a concern for, for folks right now during the pandemic? Make sure they're not watching too much news or, or too much YouTube. Because that's the source of fear and anxiety and reminder that you don't have control of what's going on out there. And as, as human beings, we like to think we have control. So... If you can, if you can manage the source of what's bringing you that anxiety and that fear, you will be able to focus on the things that that matter, the things that that are healthy for you and bring you joy, the things that you have control over, the actions that you can take. So I say, even if you have, um, even if you had the television on and you weren't listening to it, subconsciously your nervous system is listening to it. So I encourage people consume a reliable source of information around around the pandemic at a certain period of time for a limited period of time and then disconnect and focus on something that brings you joy what do you like what are your hobbies what are you going to invest what do you want to do after the pandemic you want to take that trip you want to get into that hobby that you always wanted to do start focusing on things that light you up and then you'll you'll put less energy toward um the pandemic and things you can't control you know, so you get to choose where you put your energy. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the problem, and this is something I've discussed on my podcast before, the problem is is with the technology, whether it be, you know, uh, on the computer, or on the iPhone, these apps are designed to uh, essentially elicit behavioral addictive responses. And what happens is when someone's sitting around or they're, you know, moving from one task to another, um, rather than, you know, having to expend the effort that the mental, you know, initiative of, okay, what are my goals? You know, what are my hobbies? It's very easy to just pick up your iPhone and, you know, p- you know, start scrolling through Instagram or, or start playing um, a game or, or, you know, whatever, <laughs> if you're, if you're into that. So I think you almost have to like go against the grain and resist yeah. the inertia to put yourself in a position to do what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I say consume 
um, media, I'm, I'm not only saying television, I'm saying consuming the articles, the posts, the people are posting on social media, like take a break, take a, take a few hour break and focus on something, you know, that you love. Maybe you like painting, maybe you want to indulge in a book you've always wanted to read. Um, give yourself that break to just not allow, you know, that noise to champ, to clamor in your head and maybe meditate, clear your head even more, you know? I mean, these are all choices and we have control over those choices. That is where we have control. And I, let me pick your brain on something. Um, this is something my listeners will, will find familiar, but I want to get your take on it, Michelle, just because we're on the, the subject. I have this theory that there's no such thing as boredom in, in 2020. Like, I'm sure you can remember when you were a kid or, or, you know, when you were younger, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, um, you know, you you would sit around having to think about how you're going to fill your time, um, having to play pickup sticks or, or dominoes or puzzles, what have you. But I, I do think that, you know, for the most part, people don't have that um, have to worry about dealing with boredom right now because of a lot of the technologies. And it might be the case that yeah. this pandemic for a lot of people is the first time that they've felt a sensation like boredom in their lives. And they're not yeah. sure how how to grapple with that. What do you think? Uh, it, and, and isn't it amazing? I mean, honestly, like how many times in the normal routine of life was it like, I just don't have enough time to do what I want. Um, I have, you know, all these obligations. I'm running, running, running. Like, it's almost like the most beautiful excuse to just slow down and and start like, oh, is that a bird in the tree? Like really just start <laughs> taking it in, you know, like um, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. I think people might, might not know what to do with the boredom, but like, I don't know. It's a great opportunity to recharge your battery. You know, I mean, look for the silver lining in all this, um, you know, you it, it's a, it's an opportunity to slow down. And I think it's an, also an opportunity to reflect on your life. I, I'm mm -hmm. personally, I'm taking inventory. I'm like, all right, so is this what I want to do? Is this where I want to live? Does this matter to me anymore? Maybe mm -hmm. 10 years ago it mattered. Maybe it doesn't matter anymore. Um, I think I want this new habit. I think I need to develop this skill. So for me, I'm taking inventory. I'm like, all right, how am I going to leverage this time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I, lo I love that you mentioned the opportunity for reflection because I think that in this time, you know, people are reevaluating, for example, their relationships. If you're quarantined with um, a partner and maybe you know you don't see it uh, working out, or, or maybe you realize, oh, like this person and I actually do gel pretty well. It is a good reflection, a good time for you to you know to look forward and see inevitably when we get out of this, what do we want our life to look like? Yeah. And you also mentioned, um, I think the last thing you said uh, when you gave your tips on for ordinary people dealing with mental health during the pandemic, you mentioned exercise and getting outside. So yeah. why is it important for people to make sure to get outside? And do you recommend people go out once a day, once a week? You know, what do you think works? Well, I think if you talk to any anyone, or I, I am not a fitness guru by any stretch of the imagination. I sometimes have a hard time getting my butt out in general. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an expert, but I do know from personal experience that endorphins are a beautiful thing and they make me feel a hundred times better than I did if I was just sitting on the couch and maybe eating um, popcorn. I don't know. So for me, I get at least 30 to 40 uh, minutes of movement in because I know in general, elevating my heart rate is going to help me, um, just feel better physically. And above all, it's going to help me get a more restful sleep at night. If I've worked out, I always feel like I get a better night's sleep. So I, I, for me, I have to do it at least once a day. And if I miss a day, um, I make sure I get right back on it the next Mm -hmm. And this might be sort of anecdotal, but I don't know, like I just feel the days because because there have been days in this pandemic that I have not left my apartment, that I've just been grinding away indoors. And, you know, then all of a sudden I open my window and, and it's dark out. And those days I generally just mood wise, I I just feel a little mm -hmm. bit more down. So I think yeah. and, and, you know, I, I think there's some neurological basis to this, but uh, definitely having the opportunity to go outside and just get sunlight or even, you know, open your windows. I, yeah. I feel like that's critical to avoiding something like seasonal affective disorder or depression. 
Yeah, absolutely. The fresh air, the sunshine. I I know a lot of people, I love hearing these stories. A lot of people are adopting animals now Mm -hmm. uh, for the companionship, but also because it gets them out. At least they're getting out for a walk. I mean, my, my dog, thank God. I mean, if it wasn't for her, I definitely wouldn't get as many walks in a day. I walk her three, four times a day and that just gets me moving my body and getting fresh air. So, um, yeah, it's really important that little bit of fresh air is, is super, super important. And the sun, don't forget the sun. The sun's super important when it's out. Yeah. That's amazing to hear. Like you said, you know, we'll talk about silver linings, but um, that you have animals that, you know, are at shelters that maybe, you know, prior to this didn't have a home and now people are getting dogs. And like yeah. you said, you know, uh, a lot of these dogs, you know, maybe we're desperate to go on a walk some two months ago. And now it's like the dog is tired. Like, you know, you're walking, <laughs> you're walking me again. You've already walked me three times today. You know? Yeah. I have a friend of mine who said it, uh, my friend Ben was saying his dog Roxy is just plain out sick, sick and tired of him walking and drag being drugged through the park every day. It's like, yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, no, I like you're saying it, it's a good, it's a good reason to get outside and, you know, kill two birds with one stone. The dog gets some exercise. So I think these are all like really valuable, things that people can can integrate into into their their day-to-day lives um, during during this pandemic and I think it's critical you know as we're talking as we're talking about to just not um, suffer in silence and you know uh, to to lean on others for support you spoke about resources are you aware of particular resources that are available either during the pandemic or just more generally to, to people that are going through these things Yeah. And I think, you know, I I think the key around if you feel an imbalance or you feel like you're off and you're just not yourself is to keep talking, whether you trust someone that you can confide in. It's super important to keep talking because when you stay in your head, it's just it and you just sort of think about it in your head over and over. It's so much um, it's less scary when you open your mouth and you just talk to someone about it. So make sure that you're talking and a way you can do that to stay engaged and keep the conversation conversation going. If you don't have someone to confide in, there's an amazing app that my friends created called 18%. Um, it's, it's actually, um, it's a Slack community. It's 18, the number, uh, percent written out.org. It's a free peer to peer anonymous, um, community where you can go and you can just talk to someone who might be dealing with anxiety, might be dealing with depression. Um, and, and they just support one another. It's a truly uh, compassionate, loving community. I used to moderate for it. Um, so that's a great resource. If you are concerned for a loved one and you think they're exhibiting the signs of depression, be sure to tap into NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They actually have um, signs and symptoms, but then they also just recently released a COVID-19 um resource kit. So check that out if you want to know more specifically around mental health um, and, and, you know, and depression and anxiety for a loved one or yourself. That's amazing. Thanks so much for sharing um, mm-hmm. uh, 18% and, and is it NAMI or NAMI? It's NAMI, National Alliance on Mental, okay. mental Illness. Yeah. And NAMI as well. And I think, um, you know, my, my sister is an aspiring clinical psychologist, so she's been pretty much like over capacity doing teletherapy and, and talking with clients. Um, so I'd imagine, you know, that's also something either, I don't know, pr- publicly or, or privately, but getting that. Um, and they have, I think they have now, Michelle, like text therapy. It, it's crazy how far it's come. Yeah, there's a lot of great resources. I know um, Michael Phelps uh, promotes Headspace. Um, that's like considered, uh, you know, uh, what's that called? Telemed. So you could actually get access to a therapist. I mean, it's it's so it's becoming so much more accessible. And that's the that always was a, a giant barrier for people. You know, oh, I can get in to see a therapist in like three weeks. Like, no, I need a therapist right now. Yeah. So, you know, look into those because there are there are definitely um, resources where you could get a phone call with a therapist and get support. It's just amazing, like the practice of therapy, the fact that half the time, you know, you go in to see a therapist in person, the therapist doesn't say a word. And just having that person to word vomit all over for 60 minutes, you, you, you leave feeling a lot lighter. And yeah. I imagine, you know, you don't quite get that relief with teletherapy or headspace, but it probably helps quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of um, physicians in general are doing um, video calls, too. And so I don't know about you, but like, I I feel like I get a decent connection through Zoom and through Skype when I'm looking at someone. So I mean, don't underestimate that as well, you know? 
Definitely. No, I, I, I mean, I think I think Zoom and, and Skype are definitely uh, adequate substitutes. I actually, before you, you came on, um, I had recorded something I read in National Geographic uh, talking about Zoom fatigue, where in, ga- in gallery view, Michelle, you end up having to like over emote because you're, you know, too, you're too small and people have too much stimuli to take in. I think the one on one, to your point, the one on one element is, yeah. is probably effective. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so I want to I want to turn to the stigma of mental health for a couple minutes here because this is something I've talked about quite a bit on the podcast um, about the social stigma and the self perceived stigma that people with mental illness struggle with. In your years working in the mental health field, you know, have you seen the stigma reduced at all, or is it the same now as it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago? I think it is going to vary, right? Different uh, industries, different workplaces, different situations. Um, I I will acknowledge and recognize that we have uh, courageous um, athletes and celebrities who are openly talking about it, and that sort of makes it okay um, to just even engage in a conversation about it. So that that's huge. And that definitely helps reduce stigma. Lady Gaga with her, um, you know, with all of her efforts, it's just incredible to, to kind of see that progress being made. And in the workplace, it varies. It depends on the culture. It depends on the remit from the top level of, of the organization. It depends on um, a lot of different variables. I, I personally, I mean, I witnessed at my Fortune 50 company, a lot of tremendous progress was being made, but still you had individuals that just weren't on board. So you're, you're still going to have um, circumstances where people's biases come into play, like their relationship to mental health plays a role in how they lead and how they manage people who maybe have something because, you know, they have their own bias going on. So it's it's varied. And I think um you know, I live in a town where my mayor has declared that she wants our town to be stigma free. Now, I know that's unusual. I mean, I don't know too many towns who are like declaring that they're stigma free and they're going to humanize mental health like like, wow. So I think there are, there are glimmers of hope um, in different companies and different communities um, that, you know, that, that we're moving into a new space where mental health is is talked about and accepted. And I think, you know, where we're going is in the right direction for sure. It's funny thinking pragmatically about this concept of stigma. Um, I mean, I don't even know if, if most people knew what that meant, uh, you know, five years ago, but or ten years ago. But now everyone talks about the stigma of mental health. Um, and you know, with what you just alluded to, with your mayor making a stigma free, it's it's interesting. It's almost like you know, you need to bring this stigma into conscious awareness because you know, you talk about biases. It feels like something that people don't acknowledge or people don't think about, but you almost have to say, accept that there is a little bit of a stigma. There is a little bit of judgment that might go on if someone talks about their mental health disorder and finding ways to, to normalize that and make it more relatable. So what do you, you know, how do you think people, um, might, might do that? I think storytelling and being really, um, you know, for the folks who have navigated a mental illness and who have come out the other side, there is no greater representation of hope than that person sharing their story of um, triumph and perseverance and being able to navigate that and be okay in the end. Um, I think those are those are the opportunities that companies have and environments in the community have to to showcase the success stories and really normalize it. So you know people can just start getting more comfortable with it. I mean, it takes conversation to remove stigma, open conversation. Stigma can't live where there's open dialogue about something that used to be so taboo. For sure. I, I think I think it's critical that people tell stories not just about their you know history of mental illness, but maybe seeing mental illness in others or you know, you mentioned, you know, media, uh, the role that media plays in depicting mental illness responsibly, because, you know, let's face it, maybe not so much right now, but um, in the early 2000s growing up, whenever I saw mental illness discussed in the media, it was always this big, horrible thing. I used to, uh, Michelle, did you ever watch the show General Hospital? Of course. My mom. So, so growing up, I used to watch my mom and uh, Sonny, Sonny Corinthos had bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and my mom, if she's, you know, she'll probably listen to the episode, um, knows that Maurice Bernard has it in real life. And I remember when the show talked about it, 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 
presented and framed his bipolar disorder, like this catastrophic illness that, you know, consumed everything around him. And now you look at bipolar disorder, as you spoke about, and it's just, you know, another aspect of a person's identity. So I think that's that seeing that progression is, is sort of interesting also. It so is. And that those are the examples. I mean, like, how amazing was it when that Eagle player um, with the Philadelphia Eagles? So I'm not a football fan, but this left an imprint on me. There was a uh, there was a football player who pulled himself out of the game and later came out and said, listen, my anxiety got the most of me. And, and you know what? I had to pull myself out of the game. I couldn't play. And it was a huge loss for the team. The team was counting on him being in the in the game. But that what he did afterward about openly talking about it and saying, I'm managing it now and I, and I have what I need. And, um, and that's just, you know, I live with this every single day and you never see it, but I'm managing it. And that, and that one day I just, it got the better of me and I had to pull myself out. Those are the examples. Those are, those are the, the, that started conversations amongst, uh, grown men, around mental health, I'm quite confident because of what he chose to do. And that's how we cause change. You know, just because you you opened the door with the football example, but I, I have a baseball one for you too, because that's that's more my sport. But um, a lot of baseball players deal with social, ang- or not social rather, uh, I, I guess it's performance anxiety or maybe it's generalized anxiety. Um, and essentially like players like Joey Votto, a hitter on the Reds and uh, Zach Greinke, a pitcher on the, um, I believe he's on the, the Astros now, or essentially they they have trouble um, not only during a game but after the game speaking to reporters and you know pit, just pitching on a on a big stage and it's not just being nervous like you would be before a game it's actually this this incredibly debilitating um, you know physiological and psychological illness and you know like in your example with the Eagles player. These folks have spoken openly. They haven't, you know, shied away from it about their struggles with anxiety. And I think it's made other people more comfortable also uh, sort of identifying with the same things. It takes the pressure off of you going first, right? Like, oh, let's talk about that, that player and what they said. And man, I can relate to that. So it's a little bit um, less intimidating when we have others like that go first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, think about, you know, if you're if you're in an auditorium and, and, you know, the professor or teacher asks, oh, has anyone experienced this? It's really hard to be the first one to raise your hand, but it's not as hard to be the second and third and fourth um, to just kind of follow that lead. So I think that's that's an important component. And then you also a minute ago, you said something about um, men in particular uh, being able to to share their stories. Do you think there is a gender component to to this at all? A difference Ab- between men and women? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's just my perspective. I, I think men are, um, you know, they're raised to be strong, right? To be independent, to be, um, you know, not maybe, maybe in some old school families, not show your emotion, be tough. Like, you know, you got it handled no matter what. And, you know, I think about, I think about, um, first responders, because that's one area that I'm working on with my, with my partner. Um, and you know, I know that we have women also who are first responders, but I think a lot of, a lot of men, it's hard to acknowledge when you're struggling with something, you don't want to be perceived as weak. So we have some work to do around that with uh, mental health for, for men, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that definitely, you know, you look at everything that's, that's, in the media and that's being written about, you know, traditional gender dynamics and masculinity and things like that. And I think you are seeing a little bit of a shift where men are more more sensitive and more communicative about their feelings. And hopefully that also continues to show through with their openness to talk about mental health. You know, one area that you focused on in your career, which we haven't really spoken about yet, is mental health in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And well, I, I actually, be, be, before I, I, I share uh, my experience on that, so just what what have you done on mental health in the workplace and, and what do you hope to continue to do in that area? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, so right now I'm working with, with a couple of different companies on helping them to frame their mental health strategy. So what does that mean? So when you think about the workplace and you think about creating an inclusive, a truly inclusive workplace, that means accommodating and accepting people of all abilities. So, you know, I think it's the last frontier of true 
inclusion in the workplace and diversity and, and having people of every ability, you know, present. So we're working on strategies on, you know, what is it that they can do in their workplace to have their culture be that um, that place where employees want to work, where new recruits, new hires um, integrate fairly well because it is inclusive an inclusive environment of, of all capabilities. So I think that's, um, and the strategies are, you know, are multi-pronged, right? What are your, you know, I, I sit down and I, I talk with leaders about their current culture and what it is that they're that they're doing right, because a lot of companies are doing things right, but they just can do a little bit more. Um, and I think, I think there's just tremendous opportunity for for workplaces to take to take a look and say, what are we doing? Because you also have to think about this, Ricky. Post COVID, we're going back to a world that we don't we don't know what it's going to be like. So you might be dealing with employees that have a lot of PTSD or a lot of anxiety or a lot of depression. Who knows how this is going to impact them? It is truly an opportunity for employers to take a good hard look at the space their employees will come back to. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, it's it's going to pay dividends, and it was a cogent point you made too about the uh, the post COVID world because. I think that you saw after 9/11 the you know incredible PTSD that a lot of first responders had, and I you know I think for any uh, 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 medical professional you know whether you're in uh, you know whether you're a physician or maybe you're a therapist psychologist you're going to need time and you're going to need resources to recover and hopefully I mean you know people joke around it on Twitter but you know these these uh, first responders will get a nice long vacation at the end of this this stretch. Uh, to heal and to recover. Yeah, yeah. I, that's where I challenge leaders right now. I, I challenge people leaders and human resource leaders to say, what is it that they could be doing now for their people? You know, um, employees are going to reflect and say, what did my employer do for me? How did they show up for me when I was navigating this at home in isolation? Mm. It's a, it's a tremendous opportunity for companies to just do something positive and supportive for their people so they feel cared for and not, um, you know, left out there to navigate this on their own. So it's, it's a great opportunity to do something now and, and to be planning for the culture they return to. And it breeds loyalty. If, if your employer totally. took care of you during this it's like excruciating, unprecedented pandemic, you're probably going to want to stick around compared to if your employer kicked you to the curb or forgot about you, you might look for other opportunities when all this is over. Ricky, I just read an article about that. Um, I think it, it was in a, an HR publication that this is the opportunity for employers to breed that loyalty because an employee is going to remember how they felt during this time and how their, how their leader, their immediate leader and their company made them feel. I agree. I agree with you. I, you know, I'm thinking personally in my experiences, because, uh, you know, I've worked since since I was young at, you know, fast food restaurants, corporate law firms, finance companies, city government, uh, bookstores, and thinking back, and and I know these were different times, but I don't think any of those organizations really ever prioritized emotional wellness or the resources available to people dealing with anxiety or depression, and probably the closest I can think coming to that were these big corporate firms. And that might be a reflection of their resources that they had compared to, you know, the fast food place or, or pet store. Um, it might also be I, I worked there most recently. But to your point about breeding loyalty, I do think that the places that were most um, respectful and mindful of their employees' emotional well-being, uh, those are the ones that you really don't want to leave because you feel cared for. And that, that's definitely been my experience, too. But you know what it is, too? I think back in the day, Ricky, I think it was a nice to do, right? Oh, it was a nice. Let, let's do something nice for our people. Let's, like, care for their for their, um, their mental well-being. Like, I think now we're moving away from that. It's, it's now much less of a nice to do, but more of a need to do. Because if you look at the dollars and cents that, that um, absenteeism, presenteeism, all of these things play, I mean, disability costs in general, the percentage of disability costs that really are uh, hidden mental health costs, 
there's a financial implication. This isn't about nice to do anymore. This is about, this is affecting our bottom line. When we have employees that are pulled from the game or pulled from, from the workforce, that is an impact on the business. And then if you have them where you manage them out of the company, you know, for, you know, who knows why, then you have a turnover cost. I think companies really need to be looking at the financial implications of not caring for their people because it's there. I mean, it's real and um, and there's there's it's a win-win if they care for their people for them in terms of productivity and in terms of um, disability costs, but also for the employee, uh, their well-being, their their presenteeism, their staying engaged in their work and their loyalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and on the point of productivity, uh, let me know if you agree with this. So there's a principle out there, you're probably familiar with the Pareto principle, but the idea is that um, for most employer or most employees is this 80-20 thing where 80% of the work gets done 20% of the day. So I remember reading this, um, might've been in one of Tim Ferriss's books, but essentially if you're, if you have an eight hour work day, you're going to do most of your work within two hours. And then the other six hours, you're just going to goof off or, or, you know, uh, screw around with your coworkers. So in terms of increasing productivity, I think a lot of it comes down to motivation and effort and incentives and employers, you know, you talk about investment and returns. Employers, I think, will see a return uh, if if they invest into mental health. Absolutely, absolutely. And I have so many so many pieces of data and and reports about that. That hands down, absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And Michelle, you talk about uh, creating a culture of compassion, and mm-hmm. culture is one of those corporate buzzwords that people toss around and no one really knows what it means. Uh, I know again, like working at firms at every, every meeting, whether it's like HR or, um, you know, some support department, IT, it's always, you know, culture, culture, culture. So, I mean, w- what is culture and then what's a, a culture of compassion? Well, a culture is, is the, um, silent under, um, undertone of the company, right? It's how you do things. It's how it feels to be there. It's, 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 it's the emotion that it, is invoked when you walk through the doors of your of the building you work for culture is cultivated by actions taken by leaders by um hidden norms and hidden hidden uh understandings of how of how you work in the company um so it's very important it's like the tapestry behind um behind the name basically so yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that can be done to cultivate a, a culture of compassion. Listen, at the end of the day, Ricky, this comes down to us being human beings and genuinely caring for each other like brother and sister. We're human beings first before we're an employee number. Yeah, th- thanks so much for sharing. I think those are those are really helpful and specific um, components to that culture of compassion. Things that companies can do today uh, to proactively you know, show that they're prioritizing this to their employees. Uh, what do you think about this analogy? This is something that I read about. Um, this was a long time ago, but there's a book. I don't know how, you know, I was one of those kids. I took everything, every book out from the library. There's a book called, uh, how full is your bucket? Have you heard of that? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and I, 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 I remember just taking that book out. And, and again, I was a kid, I, I don't have an office, but they said that when you're in a an office or, or even like a classroom, really any c- communal environment like that, imagine Everyone has a bucket around their neck and there's a little ladle in it. And when you interact with every single person, you want to take the ladle and scoop out some water from your bucket and dump it into their bucket as a way of like kind of sharing the, you know, the, the community. And I guess maybe that's culture, but kind of in the line, in in the vein of what you're saying, having that, um, that visual in your interactions in the office is probably, probably pretty effective. Yeah, you know, it's really all about empathy and compassion, right? So it, it also starts with, are we empathetic and compassionate for ourselves? Because that's the first step in order to be compassionate and empathetic for other people. Have you done the work where you love and you're compassionate about yourself? So that's like the really the primary step. But what you're speaking to with the bucket filling is genuinely all about having compassion and empathy and not under and not necessarily assuming what you know, someone else's life is like for them. You don't walk in their shoes, but you can demonstrate compassion and empathy toward every person you come in contact with. And, and that's just, you know, that's just being a good human being at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. And I think that 
it feels good, you know, and, and it, to, to go into your bucket and fill someone else's bucket up. It's kind of like symbiotic because the other person feels great. Hey, my bucket's full, you know, let's go. I, I got a nice compliment. But then you feel good because you're like, wow, look at this person's bucket that's now overflowing. So it just seems like having that empathy that you're speaking of, that compassion is really best for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, Ricky, um, this is something I was going to end with, but I'll share it now. You know, if you were to ask me what's one thing we could all do, we could all extend ourselves and reach out to people during this isolation period and really just extend ourselves and ask how they're doing. Are you okay? How are you doing? Do you need an ear? Um, You know, how's your day going? Because when we extend ourselves to other people and check in on them, it actually does fill our bucket. Because we're we're actually then being able to step outside of our own needs and check in with someone else and be a contribution to someone else. So in serving others, we really do serve ourselves. I love that. I I, I love that. I think I think that's the kind of mentality that people need to have, not just during COVID, but really, really always. Before we wrap up, Michelle, usually at the end of the episode, I like to reiterate the most important points that we touched on to really hammer home what people should take away from our conversation. So I'm going to pass the baton to you. If there's one thing that you want folks listening to take away, because we've been talking for a long time, you know, maybe people are tuning out. What's the one thing that you want people to take away from this conversation? Checking in with yourself and checking in with each other is a really important thing to be doing during COVID. Um, Identifying how you're feeling, making sure you're taking care of yourself and making sure you're taking care of your loved ones is really important. Um, And also, you know, I'm not gonna, like I'm just sharing this. As I mentioned before, there are simple things we can all be doing to maintain the balance in our lives. Um, But you, you have to get present to them. And, and I do have a, a webinar that I'm delivering to so many employees at my, at, with my companies that I'm working with just to remind us of what we do have control over and how to structure our day so we can maintain um, a level of control in a situation where we don't have a lot of control. So, For sure. For sure. Maintaining the check-ins with yourself maintaining control and extending a reaching hand. Um, that's, those are some incredible takeaways. And this has been a super insightful conversation. I'm sure that so many of my listeners want to know where they can go to connect with you and to learn more about um, the causes that you advocate for. Uh, where can they find you online, Michelle? Sure, sure. Um, you can follow me. Um, you can find me on my website. It's Michelle with two L's, e Dickinson.com. And there you can learn about my programs. You can learn about um, my webinar that I'm doing, uh, Protect Our Happy, the Resilience Conversation, um, and you know all the other work that I'm up to with first responders. I have a children's program. There's a lot of great work that is going on um, and that I'm super excited to, to keep moving forward. Wonderful. I'm sure lots lots of those listening will check that out. Well, thank you again for joining me, Michelle. This has been a delight. Thank you so much for having me, Ricky. Thank you for talking about this. We all need to be talking about this more. So thanks for talking about it. Definitely. Take care. Thanks. There you have it, folks. Thanks so much for tuning into the conversation with Michelle. Uh, I definitely learned a lot. <laughs> My biggest takeaway, as as she kind of alluded to, is just let's let's have these conversations. Let's tell our stories. Let's not shy away from it. And by you know bringing this this stigma in air quotes into the forefront, we are doing our best to normalize it, to make it so that you know this just becomes a difference. You know, mental health is is a mental health disorder is like a difference between us. You wear glasses, I wear contacts. You know, maybe I suffer from anxiety, maybe you don't. Uh, and it's really important to be mindful of mental health, particularly during uh, COVID-19. So if you like the episode, uh, you can follow Michelle on Instagram at michelledickinson71. Uh, It's Michelle, D-I-C-K-I-N-S-O-N 71. And like, kind of like she said, which I hadn't thought about, it's also interesting when we start thinking about what is life going to look like in a post-COVID world? Uh, Will people have PTSD? Will there be upticks in depression and anxiety and bipolar disorder and social disorders well people have difficulty reacclimating into the world of of social and person interactions i've talked a lot about how technology has made us all extremely awkward and people don't know how to have in-person conversations anymore because all they do is converse over phone and over text message well most people many people have not had 
you know, substantive in-person interactions in months. And depending on how long this quarantine goes, it might be a significant amount of time before we have in-person interactions. So what sort of impact will that have on socializing, on making friends, on dating? These are all things that we're going to be monitoring over the next few months. So it was a very enjoyable conversation, and I appreciate you guys being here uh, with us for that. Next week, sort of continuing the theme of staying healthy during corona, I'm going to be speaking with a coach, trainer, and instructor whose list of clients includes an Olympic gold medalist, World Series champion baseball players, and Pro Bowl football players. And we're going to be talking about how to stay in shape without access to a gym or without heavy-duty fitness equipment, and keep yourself from gaining the COVID-15. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for joining me here on Nervous Habits Podcast. If you have not already, follow me on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Um, Send those emails in if you have questions, comments, if you want to share your story or your experience uh, dealing with mental health uh, illness or, or you know someone in your family or friend who has dealt with it before, send me those emails at nervousheppespodcast at gmail.com, nervousheppespodcast at gmail.com. Also on YouTube, search Nervous Habits Podcast. Uh, if you have not done so, would really appreciate if you rated and reviewed the podcast on, uh, not iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. Really appreciate uh, that so you let, you know, let others know that we're growing, that Nervous Habits is reloaded. So that would be uh, an enormous lift for me. Um, and other than that, you know, take care of yourself, take care of one another during this pandemic. Um, and most importantly, stay nervous. <laughs>